So there's this thing called uh, imposter syndrome. And it's when someone so doubts their own capability um, or, or their talents or their qualifications that they're afraid that people are going to find out that they're actually a fraud, even though they might not be a fraud. But they're so nervous, they're so afraid of failing. Um, you know, and they feel it. And so it's this thing called imposter syndrome, is that people will find out that you're an imposter, that you're not really who you, who you say you are. And, you know, if I'm honest, as a, as a stuttering pastor, I've wrestled with imposter syndrome many, many, many times. Um, I, I remember once, uh, I, years ago, I think maybe it was the first wedding I did here at Cornerstone, I'm not sure, but it was one of the early, early ones, and it was a, uh, it, it was a wedding in someone's, someone's yard, you know, they were really friendly, really nice about it, you know, you know they were excited, it was very relaxed, very, very, um, not a very stressful moment, but inside, I was a ball of nerves, because I was doing this really official thing, and, uh, and so at that moment, I was afraid of being, um, being found out that I wasn't who I said I was, you know, you know so I'm trying to be super confident, and, uh, but um, it's, it's not working, and somehow I managed to stutter through the ceremony, thinking that, man, I've just l let them down, because no one wants to get married you know, with a pastor who stutters over his words, and it was really awkward, and, uh, but managed to get through. And, you know, linked with that was, yeah, was, was this feeling of being, being a fraud, of being a phony. And in those moments when we feel like frauds and phonies, when we have this, when we suffer from imposter syndrome, we ask a question, and the question is this, who am I that I should whatever? And you can fill in the gaps for your own life. Um, what gives me the right? Who am I that I should do this? Now, asking the question, who am I, you know, just those three words, asking who I am or who am I is a question of identity. But who am I that I should is a question of maybe calling. It's a question of your vocation. It's like your identity with motion and with action. So it's kind of even more important in a sense. So um, on that, um, you know, on that afternoon when I married the couple, um, I would have asked myself, who am I that I should marry this man and this woman? What gives me the right? Isn't there someone who's more qualified, who's a better choice than me? And when we ask the question, who am I that I should, we're asking, uh, am I the right person for the job? And, uh, and really, our fear is that we're the wrong person for the job. And if you're a Christian and you've asked the question, who am I that I should then the root of that question is the suspicion that God has chosen wrongly, right? And so, so, so this morning, um, we, we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, through to Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, feel free you know, to turn there. We, 
it, it's a lot, you know, so uh, as we work through Exodus, we will be covering a large amount each week, and so we won't be able to get, able to, get to everything in this section, but um, we will be looking at various points uh, between Exodus 2.11 and Exodus 4.31. But it's in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Exodus in our passage today that we see Moses ask this very question. He says, who am I that I should in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. And so, you know, the question, who am I that I should, will actually anchor our study uh, because it's a, it's a universal question, right? Um, who am I that I should parent this child? Who am I that I should go into the mission field? Who am I that I should work in this sector of the business world? I feel like a phony. If only they knew how little I know, one day I will be exposed. Who am I that I should lead the team? Who am I that I should have the hard conversation that I have to have? Who am I that I should serve in this role in the local church? And so this morning, I'm inviting all of us, you know, to come to God with our who am I that I should questions. That is that section of your life where you feel fake or you feel a phony or you feel underqualified or you feel that one day you will be exposed um, but whatever it is, and I think that through our text, or my, my, my hope is that through our text this morning, is that God answers your question, who am I that I should? And I think he'll answer it in three ways. He will answer this question through your past, by looking at your past. And he will answer this question by looking at your personality. And he will answer this question, most importantly, by looking at God's presence. So your, so your past, your personality, and God's presence. So if you're a journaler, you know, if you're a sermon journaler like I am, I don't sermon journal much because I'm the preacher most of the time, but um, all of my sermon journaling happens in the week ahead of time, and it comes in the form of a manuscript. But if you're a sermon journaler, then... Uh, Write this down, right at the top of the page, who am I that I should, uh, you know, and then leave a blank space and write in there, what is your who am I that I should, and then, um, and then write underneath uh, your past, your personality, and God's presence, or my past, my personality, and God's presence, these three headings. So the first way that God answers your question, who am I that I should, is through your past. He says, look to your past. And what I mean is this, that there are experiences that you have gone through. Most of the time, they're negative or they're hard. They are painful memories. Um, but these are things in your past that God wants to redeem and God wants to repurpose so that you can bring encouragement and help to others who may be going through the same thing themselves. You see, at that moment where we look at our past, Satan whispers in our ear, just keep your story to yourself. No one needs to know what happened to you. But God wants to take those stories and those situations and those chapters in your life, and he wants to use them to spur other people on in their faith. And that's why I, why, why I talk about stuttering a lot. And that's why I talk about installing, you know... Um, this uh, some some software on my phone that helps to keep me accountable. That's that's why I mention these things regularly because I don't want to have Satan to have the last word in my life. 
And so what clues can we find in Moses' rather checkered past that might help him to answer the question in Exodus 3.11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? So, so first we see in Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 to 10, we see that Moses is raised by his mum, who's pretending to not be his mum, while she's in the employ of Pharaoh's daughter, who's not his biological mum, but who treats Moses as her son. Rather complex. And so every time Moses' adopted Egyptian mum uses the word Moses, she's reminding him of his abnormal childhood. Because Moses means drawn out. And Moses was drawn out of the water where he was placed to survive a slaughter in which many of the boys his own age were killed. And so every time Moses hears his name, I wonder if he has that thing known, known as the guilt of the survivor, right? It was a dark chapter. Who am I that I should? And then we skip forward a bunch of years, and verse 11 of, of chapter 2 tells us, one day after Moses had, had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And so here we have an ethnically Hebrew prince of Egypt watching his own people enslaved. I wonder what's going on in his mind as he watches his own people working while he's in the royal robes. He then sees an, an Egyptian who's beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, as the text is very clear to point out. And verse 12 then says that he killed the Egyptian. So he's a prince of Egypt killing an Egyptian because he's ethnically a Hebrew who identifies with his own people who are slaves. And you thought that you had identity issues. This is like next level stuff, right? And then the next day he sees two Hebrew slaves and they're fighting and the rescuer in Moses rises up and he asks one of them, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew. And the response in chapter 214 is pretty harsh. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And now you have the very people with whom Moses identifies, the Hebrews, weaponizing his good intentions against him. Who made you ruler and judge over us? And of course, you know, the irony is that later Moses becomes that ruler and that judge. Why? Because God chose him and God set him apart and God made him. Now I wonder, have you ever tried, you know, to do something really good with the best intentions um, and it's totally misinterpreted or it's totally rejected and then you walk around with that wound? Well, Moses understands what that's like. And then, in the span of only two verses, Moses finds himself rejected by both cultural systems that he's a part of. In verse 14, we see this Hebrew slave, like I mentioned, who rejects him. And then in the very next verse, we read this. When Pharaoh... Um, oh, I've been, I've been jumping ahead. 
Wow. Uh, supposed to say, when Pharaoh heard. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. I, I don't, was I accidentally clicking, I think? Anyway, sorry. I'm sure that was very exciting. And you're all absolutely confused as to what the heck was going on. But anyway, so, so in verse 14, the, the Hebrew slave re- rejects Moses. And then in the very next verse, it says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. So he's rejected by Hebrew society. And he's rejected by the Egyptian society. And then he goes on the land. He runs, I don't know, like 300 kilometers away. And he ends up in a third culture called Midian. In 2 verse 15. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat by a well. Now, just to add some more complexity to Moses' identity issues. You know, the place where he is now called Midian uh, is where the slavers were who started off this whole Egypt saga by capturing Moses' ancestor Joseph, okay, taking him to Egypt in Genesis chapter 37. Okay, so those slavers were from Midian where Moses now is. And so on some level, I think all of this must have gone into the stirring of the pot of who is Moses in his heart and mind. And then Moses settles down and he lives in Midian for 40 years. Now we know it's 40 years because Stephen in the book of Acts says it's 40 years in Acts chapter 7 verse 30. Now I'm 41 years old, which means that for my entire lifespan, Moses was in this third culture, not Hebrew, not Egypt, but Midian. And he raises a family with this woman called Zipporah, who's the daughter of Jethro, who confusingly is also called Ruel in the passage. But all this to say that Moses has a life in Midian. He's not planning on going back to Egypt. Going back to Egypt was not in Moses' plan. Now we look at at this Midian portion of Moses' life and we see it as the blip in the middle of Moses leaving Egypt in exile and then returning to Egypt as kind of superhero Moses. Right? But it was a long time that he was there. My whole life he was in Midian. In fact, during the time that he was in Midian, uh, verse uh, 23 of chapter 2 tells us that the king of Egypt died. So there was a change in, in, in rulers. And this king of Egypt was the adoptive grandpa of Moses who tried to kill him. Okay? Again, messy, messy, messy. And then we read this. Um, Yeah, during, um, yeah, the, the, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. So while Moses is creating a life for himself with his new people, the Midianites, things are getting worse for Moses' ethnic people, the Hebrews, under the hands of Moses' Moses' people of adoption known as the Egyptians. So Moses is Hebrew, Moses is Egyptian, Moses is Midianite. He's from all of these places partly and none of these places wholly. So why does this matter? Why does Moses' past matter? Here's why. Because it was through Moses' 
multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual history that God had someone who was uniquely trained to move in between cultures with ease. And not only cultures, but also social strata. His, his, his birth mum was a slave, and his adopted mum was a princess. And he knew how to identify with and speak the language of both the, of, of, of each world, of the palace, and out in the work field. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is this, is that Moses was perfect for the job because of his past. So what about you? What have you gone through? What hard seasons or hard experiences, maybe situations that you would not wish on anyone? Friends, Satan would love to use these memories, you know, to crush you with shame or to ruin you with regret. He, he wants to use these memories and this past to maybe convince you that God does not love you or he could not use you because you were damaged goods. But it's those very things that Satan uh, wants to lie to you about that God wants to repurpose and use so that you can, like Moses, lead others into freedom. So when you ask God, who am I that I should Look to your past, not in a defining way, but in a redemptive way. Secondly, look to your personality. It's this whole nature-nurture thing, right? Your, 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 your past is like the nurture, and your personality is like the nature. So where do we see Moses' personality? Where do we see Moses' character? Where do we see his nature, this stuff that he's made of? Well, like all of us, we see Moses' character, Moses' personality in those moments when Moses could have done nothing, but instead chooses to do something. So first it was when he rescued that slave. He didn't have to do anything, and yeah, he killed a guy in the process. But friends, it's at that moment that we start to see the seed of who Moses will end up being. And so, Moses was, uh, and so when Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? The answer is, Moses, you've already done this on the small stage. You are the guy who will, at great risk to yourself, do whatever you, you're able to do to rescue your own people who are enslaved under the people that raised you. You are the person who will do the right thing, Moses even when it's not the easy thing. Moses has the heart of a rescuer. And we see, we see this personality trait again when Moses arrives in Midian in chapter 2, verse 16. He, he sits down by a well and he single-handedly fights off a bunch of shepherds, of unruly shepherds uh, who are habitually harassing um, the daughters of the local priest. This is Moses' nature. This is who Moses is. This is Moses' personality. He's a man with the heart of a rescuer. This is his personality who can navigate between cultures and social groups with ease because of his past. It's almost as if God is preparing him for something, maybe something like, I don't know, an international rescue effort or something like that. So what about you? How has God wired you? What are your character traits? 
or your personality strengths that you have that God has placed there that can be used by him for, for, his, for his purposes to lead people into freedom. When we ask God, who am I that I should? You should look to your past because you've got stories. You have a history and God wants to use it. Don't let Satan shame you into silence. And you should also look to your personality. You have strength. You were made in the image of God. And if you're a Christian, then, then God has redeemed your personality and he wants to use it. You know, um, after Simon Peter, this loudmouth, hardworking man met Jesus, God didn't suddenly make Peter quiet and submissive. And really polite. That's not what happened. No, he just salted Peter's personality with his wonderful grace. But he was the same guy afterwards, just transformed. And so don't let Satan cause you to um, hide your light under a bowl, your God-glorifying, God-created, and God-transformed character. Don't let Satan hide it under a bowl because God has made you fearfully and wonderfully. And then lastly, and this is the most important, is look to God's presence. When we come to God and we say, who am I that I should? When we feel like an imposter or a failure, not only do we look to our past and our personality for encouragement, because these aren't enough really. Um, you seem like Moses, we're human and we, we aren't we aren't perfect. We sin. Moses was a murderer. What he did at that moment wasn't okay. He was a murderer. And so we also have a past and we have personality flaws. Uh, we are sinners and, we, and we've let others down in the past. And sometimes our brokenness runs really, really deep. And that's why the most important thing that we need to know is that in Christ, God is present. That God is here with us. That he will go with us. That we are not alone. And so, in the story of Exodus, Moses has led his father-in-law's sheep out to feed. And it says that he's on the far side of the wilderness, okay? Not the near side of the wilderness, or the well-known part of the wilderness, but the far side of the wilderness, as chapter 3, verse 1 tells us. Uh, so he's at this place called Horeb or Sinai, uh, which is the mountain of God. And once again, this is a new location, this isn't the palaces of Egypt. This isn't the humble homes of the Hebrews. This isn't Moses' home for 40 years in Midian. This is a new place. This is another location where God chooses to meet Moses far away on the far side of the wilderness. And many times that's how God meets us. He meets us in the unknown and the unfamiliar when we're least expecting him. And in, in, in this case, God manifests his presence in a burning bush, in a bush that was on fire but didn't burn up. And so God calls to Moses from the bush, and Moses answers, here I am. And I love that. Because this Egyptian Hebrew Midianite, out on the far side of the wilderness, heard the voice of God, and he answers, here I am. Friends, when God calls us, regardless of our identity, whether we feel settled or whether we feel conflicted, whether we feel the right person or the wrong person, whether we feel that we have the right stuff or we don't, the best answer in that moment when God calls us 
is to say, here I am. Because here, this moment, is the presence of God. And it's the presence of God where all your conflicting strands of identity and your questioning and your doubt and your uncertainty, it's, it's in God's presence that all these things get unknotted and we can find peace. It's the presence of God where the hurt that we've received from those who've rejected us can be healed. And then we can be made ready in the spirit of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit you know, to go back maybe even to those very people who've hurt us as we carry with us a message of grace and hope and freedom, just like Moses did with his people who rejected him, the Hebrews. You see, the Lord saw all that had happened in Moses' life. And through these experiences, Moses was acquiring a very particular set of skills to ready him for this very particular task of bringing God's people into freedom. And of course, this never happens in a moment, right? Matthew McCullough recently told us that it took him seven years to heal from what happened to him as a kid. It's a process, okay? And, and in fact, if you read chapter 3 and 4, um, it's actually a bit of an awkward conversation between God and Moses because, you know, the Lord comes to Moses and says, you're the guy, and Moses kind of goes, are you sure? And then each time God reassures Moses, and Moses comes back with a question or, or a rebuttal or a doubt. Uh, Exodus 4 verse 1, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord, the Lord did not appear to you? And then God gives Moses three signs, a staff that turns into a snake and a, and a hand that turns leprous when he puts it into his coat and uh, water that, that turns into blood. Okay, these are massive signs. I, you know, if I went into North Gore and I, and I knew that if I went to people and I told them that Jesus is real, he's the savior of the world, and he's ready to free you if you repent and if you place your trust in him. And, and, you know, of course, we all get nervous about that, you know. None of us enjoy doing that. But, but if I knew that if they laughed at me, and, or if they brushed me off, or if they said, well, that, if, if that works for you, then that's good. And all I had to do in the face of their skepticism was to throw a maple twig on the floor, and it would turn into a garter snake. Or if I was to put my hand in my jacket, and it would come out with a skin disease. You know, I would be evangelizing all the time. Right, Jesus loves you. Really? Show me. Okay. Ta-da! There's a snake. Awesome. You should choose to follow Jesus right this moment. Why should I? Let me show you. Right? So, that would be incredible. I would love that. But, it's, it's, it's neat because even then when, when Moses' message was accompanied by signs and wonders, that the message of the gospel is still accompanied by signs and wonders sometimes. Miracles. How often do you pray for miracles in your friends' life, in, in your friends' lives so that you can then share the message of the gospel with them? Why not ask? 
Okay, we might not have these stick snake miracles or these leprous hand miracles, but miracles do happen. Like, like last not, not last Monday, but the Monday before last, um, as we were in our weekly Zoom meeting with, you know, the way which Nathan mentioned earlier, which has been such a wonderful blessing. Someone in our group shared about um, a family member who is going through a really hard time, a really hard time. And then Nathan led us in prayer for, you know, that individual. And then one week later, when we were meeting again, we heard this story. That on the night that we were praying, this group member's family member was in some place way out in the boonies on an island in the middle of nowhere, on the far side of the wilderness, as it were. And they were on their own. But at that moment that we were praying for them, Someone else showed up out of nowhere in this location and said to this person who was struggling, hey, am I able to pray for you, please? Okay, we, we were praying for this, for, for this person. And at that moment, 70 kilometers away, someone showed up out of nowhere and said, I would like to pray for you. Right, that's a miracle. That's a sign and a wonder. And so, like I said, you know, the Lord's able to meet us in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere where we least expect it, and he can start working on our hearts through the message of the gospel accompanied by signs and wonders. You know, there is so much to say in these, in these chapters, and there's so much that I've missed, but I would encourage you to read it yourself afterwards. But my main point this morning is to ask the question, who is the person that God calls? And the answer is you. You are the type of person that God calls. Because you, like Moses, you have a past. You have unique experiences that no one else has. Your troubles and your struggles and your hardships that have formed you. Maybe you've been shuffled from care home to care home. Or, you've, or, or, or you have a learning, disabil- learning disability or a speaking disability like me. Maybe you've suffered greatly at the hands of others. Maybe you've been rejected by those who should have loved you. You have a past. And because you have a past, like Moses, God calls you. And you, like Moses, have a personality. Moses had the heart of a rescuer. And you, if you're following Jesus, also have Christ-like characteristics that God wants to leverage for his kingdom expansion. Maybe you have something in your heart that draws you to, to a particular um, sort of a person or a, or, or a people group. Maybe there's this, this big world issue that moves you or a local issue that moves you. Maybe you've even had a calling. But like Moses, you've ended up far away from home far away from where you started and you've settled into this life and you have a home and a family and a job. You're in Midian. You are content. Everything's okay. But maybe if you're honest, you've lost that passion and you've lost that edge. You've lost your first love. And so friends, this morning, maybe God is calling you to remember. To remember your past and to remember your personality And to surrender them to God for his purposes and for his kingdom. What if God is calling you to speak freedom and hope and rescue into a life that someone like me could never reach? 
Because I'm not you, only you are you. I've not lived your life, only you have lived your life. Friends, Moses was Moses. No one else was Moses. And he was called not in spite of his insecurities and his problems and his troubles and his failures and his challenging upbringing. But he was called really due to his insecurities and failures and his challenging upbringing. And so when you ask God, who am I that I should go? God says, look to your past. What have you experienced? And God says, look to your personality. How have I wired you? But mostly, friends, look to God's presence. Exodus 3 verse 12 says this, I will be with you. Because ultimately, it's not about your capability or your character or your charisma. It's always about Jesus. Which is why when Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God does not boost Moses' ego with a list of his skills. Instead, he says simply, I will be with you. And he says the same to you and I. I will be with you. And that is enough. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do.